3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. It is a glorious Tuesday morning and we are not yet in the studios in at 3CR, so I can confirm that I'm likely still asleep by the time you are listening to my voice. As these sessions, these uh, Tuesday breakfast or breakfast programs in general, are all being pre-recorded. Sorry, all programs on 3CR are being pre-recorded at the moment. But I hope that wherever you're listening, you're having a really nice morning and that you're keeping your hopes high. Despite still being in stage three lockdown, um... There is light at the end of the tunnel, and I am I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good at the moment about all things COVID-related, all things considered. Anyway, let's get into the show. So what have we got on for the show today? Uh, we have a couple of really wonderful interviews, actually. Um, quite a jam-packed show this morning. So the Incredible Zoya interviewed Lizzie O'Shea about the latest smartphone app that is intended to trace the spread of COVID-19 and inform people who may have been in contact with an infected person. It is highly controversial. Um, It is a highly controversial form of surveillance. And this, it actually follows the release of a similar app in Singapore, as well as the recent release of one in Norway. So Whilst technology like this is a very useful tool to track and reduce the spread of the disease, privacy advocates have expressed concern about the app itself, as well as how its use may interact with digital technology laws in Australia, all of which are very important things to preserve um, in order for us to keep having agency as, as free citizens in this country. Also, it's worth noting that Lizzie mentioned a statement from the Attorney General Christian Porter in the interview with Zoya, saying it was made on the 25th of April. It was, in fact, made on the 21st of April. So just so all of you listening at home or wherever you are are aware that um, that fact was initially wrong. Also, uh, Tuesday Breakfast Royalty Anya speaks with Sumalina Winoto about immigration detention in Australia. Um. That was an interview that was extracted from her Women on the Line show, which is an incredible show on 3CR and well worth the listen. So uh, if you like what you hear on, um, on this segment, please go forth and, and have a listen to Women on the Line. It is, it is wonderful. I also chat with Jackie Watts from Say No to Violence about the rise of domestic violence during COVID-19 and, and what and where to go to from here. So Say No to Violence is an organisation that um, focuses on providing violence, uh, providing men who um, have practised violence or, or are likely to practise violence uh, with resources and options. Um, Jackie is an incredible and enigmatic person to speak to and um, stresses during the interview that if you are feeling like you may invite violence into your home, or you may practice violence on your loved ones, please give Say No to Violence a call. The phone number will be listed um, in the interview 
numerous times, but we will also be mentioning it on our socials as it is incredibly important to stop violence at any corner, especially at the moment when uh, systemic and social issues like social isolation, financial stress, general anxiety and stress, um, (coughs) excuse me, heightened substance use perhaps are amplifying, amplifying these issues. So it is, it is a very important interview, which also reminds me of some incredibly exciting personal news of mine, um, which is potentially worth mentioning as I have spoken about my audio documentary series tender on the show before. And, um, Recently, as in today, so Monday, (laughs) my audio documentary series Tender, which is a podcast that explores what happens once women leave abusive relationships, has just received a grant of $14,000 from Creative Victoria, which will go towards season two's development. $14,000. I'm just so thrilled and so ecstatic for myself and my incredible co-producer, Bethany Atkinson Quinton who worked so tirelessly with me every single week in developing this series. Um, But I'm also just thrilled that the government is investing in really difficult and complex and important stories about survivors of abuse and their futures and their aspirations and the inner workings of their lives. So please stay tuned. Um, Please stay tuned for that later in the year. It is something I hold very close and very dear to me. And... um, I think it is very useful. I think it's a useful form of discussion surrounding DV in this country um, that is survivor-focused. Anyway, that is all I have to say this morning. Thank you so much for tuning in to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast on this wonderful Tuesday morning. I hope you sit around for our great show. And coming up next after a couple of community announcements is myself again talking all things alternative news. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. On Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. We'll continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening. This week on Alternative News, I will be reading out um, uh, from an article published in The Guardian which details the isolation and physical distancing laws in Victoria as I believe that there are many who are confused, um, which is fair enough. There is a real over- a saturation of content at the moment and information surrounding COVID-19, it can be really hard to know exactly what our rights are, what the laws are. So I thought I'd go straight to the source. And this was the most recently updated article about this stuff. So while there has been a suggestion that the strict physical distancing laws in Victoria would be reviewed in May, 
the state does remain in lockdown. So residents are only able to leave the house for one of five essential reasons. They include shopping for food or other essential goods and services, uh, work and education, care and compassionate reasons, exercise and other other extenuating circumstances. There is a link on the Guardian website um, to a full breakdown of these reasons at the stay-at-home directions, um, which we will post on Twitter. Uh, And it is worth reading. Uh, The two-person gathering rules applies inside and outside of the home. So this rule obviously exempts from people who live in the same household, whether this be a family unit or roommates. So um, roommates do fall under the rules of family uh, during this time, which is really, really wonderful. Um, Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Dr. Brett Sutton, tweeted that exemptions would be made for visiting romantic partners. But be responsible, um, given that. Police officers are responsible for deciding who will receive penalties. This discretion is a little terrifying. Um, And so police officers are, under these laws, able to ask individuals to prove why they are out of the home or prove a group are members of the same household. But Deputy Commissioner Shane Patton said officers would use common sense, um, whatever that means, more experienced in knowing who was being truthful. Just so be wary of the discretion that is being used by um, police officers at this time. Victorians cannot visit family members who do not live with them, but may drop off food and supplies for care and compassionate reasons. Children who may need to move between the houses of their parents or carers are also allowed to travel, and court-ordered visitation rights for parents can also be upheld. Penalties include the -the on-the-spot fines of up to $1,652 for individuals and $9,913 for businesses, Larger fines and even the possibility of criminal um, charges are also at play. In more exciting news, um, there are some incredible live performances that are that are taking place at the moment on Instagram, on Facebook, on other social media platforms. And I wanted to bring your attention to a series of performances called East Arnhem Live. So it's an online concert series bringing the culture, history and beauty of East Arnhem Land, Northern Territory, to audiences across the country and the world. The first performance actually featured on Saturday, the 25th of April at 7pm, but there is going to be another performance this coming Saturday, the 2nd of May. Um, So that is well worth watching. And Yolnud, the traditional owners of East Arnhem Land, practice the longest continuing traditional culture in the world. And at the centre of this culture is song, dance and connection to country. So East Arnhem Live is a really unique opportunity to visit East Arnhem Land from the comfort of your own home. And over a number of weeks, experience Yolnud artists sharing their music and culture with you from spectacular locations in East Arnhem Land. Uh, the social distancing and biosecurity designations are not Uh, stopping you from immersing yourself in um, these incredible stories through song and dance. Next Saturday, on the 2nd of May, the Andrew Gurawiri Band will be playing. And for all information, um, please check out eastarnhemland.com.au. That's E-A-S-T-A-R-N-H-E-M-L-A-N-D.com.au. Through East Arnhem Live, local artists are being employed to support them while gigs are cancelled and tourism 
is has stopped. It's really important to support First Nations art, um, First Nations folk in general during this period of time. Which is a great lead up to a fundraiser that I really want to bring everyone's attention to, which is the COVID-19 First Nations Community Impacts Fund. And whilst the entire creative community is taking a significant hit from the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, First Nations artists and creative industries workers remain highly marginalised and more at risk than ever. Similarly, Indigenous health services in many communities are struggling to keep up with the public health demands this crisis is continuing to create. The arts gives voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The creative industries create employment, provide attainable aspirations for young people and play a critical role in political change, social justice and healing. Bapudhila Foundation is a community-controlled, not-for-profit organisation aiming to contribute to the sustainability of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands community within the sector. They are Melbourne-based with national focus and funding is a huge part of providing support to artists and community. And this is where everyone can help and all donations are very appreciated. And if you visit COVID-19, or lowercase one word, and 19 other the um, numerical digits, COVID-19 slash First Nation, first slash nations slash community slash impact dot Raisley, R-A-I-S-E-L-Y dot com. You will find all the information about how to um, dedicate funds to First Nations people and all funds raised will be distributed directly to areas where significant impact can be achieved for the empowerment and support of First Nations people. So this may include donations to organisations already providing critical support, such as Support Act, um, and it may include providing support to Bapadhila's existing artist network, many of whom have completely lost their ability to earn income from their art. For more information, please contact info at org. Um, and check out the Barpert Healer social media channels, which is B-A-R-P-I-R-D-H-I-L-A. And please give where you can. It's incredibly important. Seeing your first 
That was Fall in Love by You Know. My name is Sumailina. I'm a, a community organizer who lives on Wurundjeri country, um, also known as Melbourne. And I've been visiting detention centres since 2014 and been working in the refugee rights movement as an ally for seven or eight years now. So I've been regularly visiting the detention centres in Melbourne, um, so Maribyrnong Detention Centre while it was still running and Broadmeadows. Um, yeah, so I go there once a week and have a lot of friends who I've known for quite a few years now. Yeah. And so Melina, what do the new COVID restrictions mean to the people that you have supported so far? Like with any group of incarcerated people, the detainees at the detention centres are really isolated on a good day so they don't have much connection to the outside world outside from the staff who work there and the visitors who come to see them. Since we've been in stage two lockdowns um, all visits have been banned so we haven't had any um, face-to-face interactions with people with our friends who are in the detention centres since that time which makes it really hard to kind of maintain those social connections and also just have some sort of semblance to a social life for the, for the people who are detained in there, yeah. Mm. The topic of immigration detention is very much part of the conversation about decarceration in general, and that's something that keeps coming up um, mm. in the last few weeks in particular. So what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think we need to be decarcerating people in immigration detention all of the time, especially in definite detention, we know that's against people's basic human rights. We know that the Australian government has come under fire on an international scale a number of times over the years for the policies and the structures they've put in place um, to punish people who are seeking asylum or, you know, simply for asking for help, which is just abhorrent on any given day. But especially at this time, um, you know, we... We all know that the virus, coronavirus, is a um, contagious, highly contagious disease. So any group of people that are in really high-density, overpopulated building situations really should, like, we need to be doing things to address that. And we're not seeing that in immigration detention or in any sort of prison system. And that's a huge problem. We need to be decarcerating so that these people can be safe and also the staff who work there can be safe. You know, often when we talk about decarceration, people get really stressed about, you know, what does that mean? Are we getting, you know, just letting everybody out into society without any checks and balances in place? And I think um, one thing that I always circle back to personally is that abolition isn't, you know, prison abolition is not an act. It's a process. And so when we talk about decarceration on a broader scale, what we're talking about is putting processes and structures in place to support each other in our community so that we don't need prisons anymore and not just opening the gates. Of course, I think with immigration detention, in a lot of ways, we do really just have to open the gates because lots of these people, you know, are being put in indefinite detention for no reason other than that they came from a really difficult place and had to flee their homes and came from countries that, you know, Australian governments don't particularly like that much. And so, you know, this is a very unjust punishment for what their apparent, you know, yeah, I don't even know if you could call them mistakes were. 
So I think that's a really important element when we talk about decarceration. But yeah, it's it's always an act, not uh, sorry, it's always a process and not an act. And a lot of cases with the people who are in in detention, in indefinite detention as refugees and asylum seekers, is that we're actually doing a lot more damage by having them in these centres, in these prisons, as with many other prisoners around the world who are being punished for something they've done without there actually being any port to help people through the situation, um, which is just really inhumane in my in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. In terms of uh, abolition and decarceration, I think the other thing also is when we're talking about prisons in times of a pandemic, they're not only highly dangerous but really unethical in the way that they're treating inmates. And I'm seeing this across the world again. Um, in the US and in the UK and here, the way that people who are incarcerated are being forced to stay in these environments where they're much more likely to, to get this illness and possibly die from it. So I think, yeah, we really need to be highlighting that it's not only dangerous and unsafe, but also unethical. Um, and, you know, in immigration detention, I mean, it's the whole concept and structure is unethical but in particular within the pandemic um, context this is also very unethical and I think also what we're seeing is a lot of exposure of the hypocrisies of the way that immigration detention centres are run Uh, for example I was saying at the beginning all visitors have been banned from visiting the people that they know the family that they have in detention but we're not seeing any restrictions on staff so all of the cleaners all of the IHMS staff all of the border force all of the circo staff everybody seems to be able to go in and out unchecked Um, and it's only visitors that have been banned in a way that as if the visitors are the people who are dangerous but not all of the staff who work there and are paid to be there which I think is a really interesting implementation of the policies since uh, I mean I would argue that the people who visit and voluntarily go into these places, probably care quite a bit more for the people who are being detained over the staff. Also, they've banned all of the activities in the centre. So the detainees have to stay in their particular buildings that, they're, that their rooms are in. Um, they're not allowed to go outside and play sport or stretch or go to the gym or anything, which you know is kind of similar to the laws that we've we've seen implemented across Australia in general outside communities but it has an extra heavy exacerbation in the context of a detention center because there's nothing else to do so it's really taking a toll on people's mental health and self-esteem and also physical health in that they can't leave this tiny cell that they have that, that they're usually in, and they don't have any visitors. They can't go do any activities, and so it's really, um, yeah, we're seeing it take quite a toll on the on the people that I know. I'm seeing it be really, really hard. Uh, mm. So I think that's also something we need to be talking a lot more about the fact that this is happening because we've known for a long time that detention centres are very bad for people, you know, very traumatising. Um, but I think this extra element to it is is, is going to further exacerbate those issues, especially when we don't know how long it's going to be going for. I was speaking to a friend earlier um, this evening mm-hmm. and, you know, he was just saying to me, like, well, people are saying it might go for four months and that's so long to not see anybody and not be able to do anything 
be stuck in this room and not be able to distract yourself from the fact that you're, you know, stuck in immigration detention for no reason at all. So, yeah, we're already seeing it take a really heavy toll and it's only going to get worse. So, yeah, it's a very concerning time. Definitely. I mean, we know that prison implementation, you know, it's a, it's a privatised practice these days and most of those are intercontinental companies that kind of just go around and, you know, implement their prison structures across the globe in a really disturbing way. And, yeah, in a lot of cases we've seen that companies have copied uh, immigration detention centres here in Australia mm-hmm. to then, you know, transfer those policies and structures in other places. So, so yeah, they're, they're clearly having lots of um, discussions and, you know, conventions and conferences about the the most, I guess, cost-efficient or demoralising ways to run prisons, which is, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And especially in these times, you know, in, in New York, these restrictions, how do you think the fact that people can't protest about immigration detainees' rights, how do you think this will affect the people stuck in detention? Yeah, I think... Again, I always come back to this sense of isolation that people feel when they're um, incarcerated, but also generally pandemics like this one show that people who are already isolated become even more isolated, which we're seeing all across society with, you know, elderly people who don't have a lot of family around them or single mums who are struggling to get by we're seeing more and more social isolation that is exacerbated through this pandemic. And I think the same is true for people who are in detention or in prison by us not being able to visit anymore. You know, there's a whole contact, a whole outside world being shut off from these people, which is um, just a really, really concerning issue. And yeah, in terms of protesting and the ways that communities can vocalise their feelings about immigration detention. I think that's a, another thing that we, we see kind of through time as well is that one crisis happens on top of another crisis and then we get distracted and there's too many things going on and too many things to focus on and we struggle to see how they all fit together. Mm. But I think that's, again, like I I think the most effective way that we can protest things is seeing how all of these things are linked and putting it in that big picture because a lot of the ways that you know, a government's response being so heavy-handed and, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to go straight to police is really concerning. And I think we can see that as the government exposing itself in the ways that it is a violent state, as it has been since, you know, the times of Terra Nullius. Australia is built on police, on policing and on violence and on punishment. And I think this is just really adds to that list of proof more than anything. Yeah. And any crisis is just going to expose those foundations. So I think really what we need to be doing as collectives is maintaining that exposure and highlighting it in times where we do have the capacity to address them, because I think this is a really important moment where we can take advantage of how the policing is now affecting more people than you know, at any other time, really, like lots of people are losing employment, lots of people are having to go on Centrelink, lots of people are experiencing policing and not being able to go out with as many people or have big group gatherings, like it's affecting a lot more people than it usually does. And I think 
now is a very good time to be kind of highlighting that this is the everyday life for lots of minority communities. Mm. In terms of practical ways of supporting people stuck in immigration detention now that people can't go and see them face-to-face, do you have any ideas how listeners might be able to do that? Yeah, I think the most important part is just to keep vocalising how much we as constituents and as people that the government is supposed to represent don't agree with the way that people seeking asylum are being treated. And essentially always reminding politicians and people in power that we haven't forgotten, Um, you know, sharing the articles, calling your MPs, leaving comments, always bringing this as part of the conversation because it is such an integral part of our social fabric at this point in time, the way that we treat people seeking asylum. And I think it is really important that we always keep it in our discussions when we talk about politics or governance or equity Um, We need to be talking about these issues as well because politics today is a lot about kind of, you know, the election run and then the government kind of doesn't do much and then there's the next election and there's a bunch of promises. So the more that we keep, you know, (laughs) our foot on the gas with this kind of stuff and really always keep it present in the ways that we interact with politics, I think that's really the most effective way that that we can engage with this issue at this point in time. Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. I am talking to Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch. Good morning, Lizzie. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. It felt very weird saying good morning uh, because we actually missed interview in the afternoon, but I'm trying to keep the uh, the perception that, that we're somehow transmitting this live to all our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Near enough. <laughs> Lizzie, why don't we just start uh, with you letting us know who you are, what your organisation does. Sure. Kind of uh, so I'm I'm the, uh, one of the founders and the chair of an organisation called Digital Rights Watch, which advocates for uh, rights in the online world uh, in Australia. And we do work around advocacy on all sorts of topics um, from privacy to um, data sovereignty um, to protection from surveillance, these kinds of things. Um, and we uh, try to do so through uh, activism, movement building, alliances with other civil society organisations and movements and also providing law reform submissions um, when needed. And the reason we're very active at the moment, of course, is that for a long time we suspected that something would be coming in Australia, uh, a technology project to deal with the spread of COVID-19. And so we weren't at all surprised when the Australian government announced that it was developing an app uh, to assist with contact tracing. And the app that is in discussion in the media at the moment, um, we know not that much about it, but um, from what we know, it looks like it's been modelled on the Singaporean app that was used there, um, which uh, essentially uh, seeks to use Bluetooth technology to map out who you might have been in close contact with over a period of time uh, to see if you can get in touch with those people uh, and indicate to them that they need to be tested for COVID-19 if you end up testing positive for COVID-19 yourself. Um, And uh, there's a lot of uh, things that I think are really important to think about in this app. It's really obvious, I think, how technology could be a really useful tool to 
deal with contact tracing to manage the spread of the virus and our ability to map out contact tracing will be really critical to our success to suppress the spread of the virus. But for good reason, many people in this space are really concerned about the potential that's unleashed by this app and want to um, make the point, I suppose, as clearly as possible that it's, it's certainly available to the government to design an app like this in a way that is both rights respecting and also effective. And in fact, I would go further than that. I would say that for it to be effective, the best thing the government can do at this point is to make it rights respecting. And so we've got lots of suggestions about what that might look like. Fantastic. Um, before we jump in to that, uh, contact tracing. Um, for those people who may not be across that, what exactly is contact tracing? So it means that um, if you're in close proximity to someone for a particular period of time, we don't know exactly, but um, in other apps that have worked like this, it's usually about 15 minutes of contact within one and a half or two metres, say, um, your phone will emit a beacon on your Bluetooth. So it's maybe how you connect your headphones to your phone, for example. Um, and the idea is that this app will provide access to those beacons that are exchanged between phones after a period of time so that you can then go back. It's kind of like a diary of who you've been in close proximity to over the previous two weeks or so. So generally, um, that would then allow you to say, well, I might have been in close proximity with somebody who may therefore have contracted the virus from me. Of course, it's not a perfect system because you can be in close contact with someone for much less than 15 minutes and transmit the virus, for example. Um, and equally, you can spend you know, many more minutes than 15 with someone and, and not contract the virus, even if they've tested positive. So it's not a perfect system by any stretch, but it's a way of at least um, mapping out who you've been in contact with that you might not remember yourself, um, that then allows a, a system of mapping out those contacts and therefore uh, getting them the information that they may have been in contact with someone who tested positive and being able to test positive themselves. So the idea would be that your phone would store those beacons in an encrypted format. So it's like a number. It's not really, um, it's not a phone number, but it's like a number for tracing purposes. And then when you test positive, say, um, then that would be decrypted and those people would be notified. Yeah. So, I mean, I can see where there would be some positives, quite a few positives for this. It, it, it allows for there to be far more knowledge um, for people to know whether or not they've been in contact, able to probably be able to more easily identify the spread of this disease. But obviously, mm. there are quite a few potential privacy concerns there. Mm, that's um, right. So, why don't we have a bit of a chat about that? You speak about how this app could be developed in a way that is rights respecting. Um, mm. what, what do you mean by rights respecting? So of course, I think an app like this does require you to give up some of your privacy to be effective because that's the whole point. You have to offer up a list of people that you've been in close proximity to that fit that criteria so that we can then go and ask them if they've they're likely to or test them for COVID. So, so I think it's always the case that an app like this will require um, some kind of breach of privacy uh, because for it to be effective, you have to give a list of everyone that you've been in close proximity to. And so I understand and many advocates in this space understand that no right is absolute. Uh, and there's certain circumstances where you may um, agree to a breach of your rights for a greater purpose. But um, human rights law has a way of dealing with that. It says that it's got to be necessary and proportionate uh, and that there's got to be limits in place that are reasonable in the circumstances uh, that mean that the app does, uh, or the project in this case, the app, does the minimum necessary violation for the greater good. So what I mean by that is, 
um, it could we could have all sorts of um, guarantees from the government about the capability being time limited. We could have uh, a guarantee from the government that the data will not be used for any other purpose. Um, we could have uh, uh, um, the source code that goes into the app, the back end of the app, the, the way it's written and created. We could have that published free for anyone to look at and scrutinise, including privacy advocates, not just um, people from the security space, but also people from civil society who are interested in these topics. Um, now, the government has said some of these things and it said it'll, it'll potentially publish the source code, but only after it's launched, which is too late to fix any problems. One of the issues, of course, is that this app will be launched in the context in which there's very expansive powers for, um, for law enforcement and intelligence agencies that are already on the books to interfere with te technology, to install weaknesses into technology, to allow them to access information uh, about how people use technology. And so part of the big problem I think many privacy advocates might have with this is that we've seen really two decades of uh, growing encroachment upon privacy in all sorts of very invasive ways across all kinds of technology. Uh, and then the government has started to, to suggest that um, you know, that this would be limited, that it would be limited and not available to law enforcement. But I'm not sure how that will work in practice in a context in which the powers that are available to law enforcement are already very broad, legislatively entrenched, and would require quite significant reform to wall off um, access of law enforcement to data coming mm. out of this app. So if the government says it can do it, I, I would like to see the proof. I'd like to see the receipts before they start launching the app. And I have a feeling that they won't do that because that's not really um, their concern. You know, they, I'm not saying that there's a conspiracy here, but I do think um, they don't think these questions are that important. And uh, I obviously, as an advocate, uh, don't agree with them, but I think it will also uh, mean that people are less inclined to download the app. In somewhere like Singapore, uh, it was less than 20% of people who downloaded the app. They published the source code, so what I was talking about before, the back end of the app so that you could see how it works. Um, they made it, it that publicly available for people to scrutinise and still only 20% of the population downloaded it. I think unless people have trust that the government's going to act responsibly, they don't want to download an app like this. And this long history of invasions of privacy by the government have have eroded that trust and they're now going to pay a price for it. So I don't think uh, that people will download it at the necessary rate in order to make it effective, um, meaning that I think privacy here and effectiveness are very much complementary. Mm. So, I mean, you say the number of people who would need to download it. How many, what proportion of the population do you think uh, would need to download it for it to actually be effective? So the Chief Health Officer has said around 40% uh, and I think it may need it to be even higher than that. It could be 60%, which mm. is a remarkably high number. It also, of course, um, in that context, you need to think about people who may not have phones and that people who don't have phones may also be some of the more vulnerable people, particularly for this virus. So I'm thinking about older people, uh, people who might not be in fixed accommodation, people who are living in remote communities, um, Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. I'm very concerned about the way in which this virus might spread through some of these places that are lacking often access or accessibility to healthcare services or are particularly vulnerable to the virus. 
if these people don't have the necessary technology, then it can't be downloaded as well. So that's one kind of issue. Um, uh, but yeah, um, more generally, we there's a large number of people who I think are quite sceptical of the government's credentials mm. on privacy. If you think about the My Health Record Program, which was a centralised database for storing health records for exchange between medical practitioners that was floated by the government, um, uh, two million people opted out of that because they were worried about what the government was doing and how they created this project. And I think that this is residual. It builds up over time. When you have, you know, the government going after journalists who, you know, who are publishing leaked records, or you know, the robo debt scandal where um, the department of uh, the department responsible for for welfare service delivery, uh, the minister ended up using the details of a journalist who was critical of the robo debt program and and publishing personal details about her when she 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 said that she didn't think robo debt was fair. Um, the, the government tends to use personal information and that it's gathered for one purpose to further its own purposes at times and. I think that erodes public trust in the government for these kinds of projects. And then you're, they're expecting you to potentially hand over to them very personal information. I think it's understandable why people would be mm. very risk adverse in this context. For sure. I, there was something you mentioned in there um, a, little, a little before about its interaction with law enforcement and, and the fact that the government have said that it, would not, it, it wouldn't be used as a law enforcement tool and instead of being used as a, mm. as a public health tool. What do you think, looking at how this app might function and how the government currently functions? I mean, you know, we've seen a, just a broad, the, the application of police powers um, in the past few weeks has been quite uh, shocking in places, to be honest. Mm. Um, the the, the criminalisation of, of people um, in relation to their behaviour around around COVID and social distancing, what do you think is the possibility of this being used to support um, police action against against people? You know, could this could this app actually function to be able to identify where people have been gathering in groups that are larger than social distancing regulations? Well, that's a great question. So um, the first thing I would say is. Only today, so this this issue has been discussed for um, around a fortnight, I reckon at least. And only today did Christian Porter come out and say, "Oh, we're not going to give access to law enforcement." So it's taken them a long time. And I think the fact that people are kicking up a fuss about this uh, does push the government to change its policy and to be more vocal about what it plans to do. And this is the time, I think, to organise and kind of be critical about it. Um, so uh, it's only very recently that Christian Porter has actually said that law enforcement won't get access to it, and that's sounds good in theory, but I think I can't understand how that will happen in practice. So I've literally watched um, numerous pieces of legislation that give um, the police uh, access to all sorts of information collected by devices and um, technology companies or, or website providers. And so it's very difficult to undo that, I think, for the purposes of this app. So I'll give you an example. The metadata retention regime allows essentially um, many different agencies to seek metadata, so data about data, but, you know, that tracks perhaps where your location is, for example, or um, things that are similar, not, not quite to the level of detail of a Bluetooth um, regime like in the app, but certainly a lot of information about you. That's available to law enforcement. So even if, if um, Christian Porter says, oh, we won't give them access to the app, per se, it's certainly possible that the um, law enforcement may have access to metadata through the metadata retention regime. Mm. There is also um, encryption powers. So the encryption powers that were passed a little while ago, about a year and a half ago, 
that allows government to install weaknesses in encrypted systems, to gain access to encrypted systems uh, for law enforcement purposes. Now, th there are some limits on that, but there's a point here that if you if you have a warrant for an offence or a, suspect, a suspicion that someone's committed an offence, um, you can seek to uh, infiltrate an encrypted system of communication in order to uh, arrest someone, to gather evidence on them. And that's, um, that's a, a power that exists and it's protected by secrecy provisions so that you might not even know that law enforcement is actually doing that. Um, and so that's a, a power that was passed nominally to protect us against terrorism and pedophilia and the like, um, but you can see how it could be redeployed deployed in this setting as well. And we may not know anything about it. So the whole ecosystem of national security law is complex and wide reaching already. So the claim that we can hive this off from law enforcement, I think is pretty much empty rhetoric and should be certainly taken with a critical mind. And we should be asking very difficult questions, I think, of the government at this point about how they would plan to do that, because I don't see it being legally possible. And I think the devil's in the detail here. They might make promises like this, but, you know, it's a long time before we realise perhaps that they haven't kept them. Um, and that's certainly been, I think, the experience of many advocates in this space, that that's a repeated uh, experience in which, you know, they say that these powers are for one thing, and years later it turns out for, that they're for something entirely different now, um, that there's mission creep, uh, there's solidification of these kinds of practices, and it's very difficult to undo them. So now's the time, I think, to be quite active and vocal about criticising the government and, and mm. trying to make sure that they don't get away with a further entrenchment of surveillance powers. Yeah, and you speak about being active and vocal. Um, how can we do that? What's, what's the best approach um, in, in relation to this app or, or just even in general uh, to um, hold our government to account around, around these, these powers that they're, that they're sort of um, broadly you know, giving themselves when it comes to technology? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I mean, getting active however you can is really important. I think um, there's lots of different civil society organisations that are starting to engage with this topic because obviously technology issues are not just for technology organisations to advocate around, but actually often have implications for people across all spectrum of society um, who, who may be affected by these proposals. So, you know, welfare organisations that deal with people who are experiencing poverty, um, you can see how this is relevant to their work, for example. So if you're involved in one of those organisations or you're involved in a union, for example, you may wish to raise this with your, your, um, your organisation or your union to say, I want you to do the work of advocating against this because I don't support it I think it's important. I mean, you can also, you can check out what we do at Digital Rights Watch. You can be on our mailing list. We often make call outs to our members to um, take action, to sign documents, to, um, to spread the word, to raise awareness. And, um, you know, I, I think there's real utility in, in doing it now. We, we spend a huge amount of our lives online now and organising online has to come up with we have to come up with new and exciting ways to do that work. And so we'd welcome uh, the input of those who are engaged on this topic to do so, because we're certainly looking for new ways to advocate. I mean, we'll certainly be participating in some of the more formal processes around um, making submissions to government. We've written letters to the relevant health minister in partnership with other civil society organisations. And that's something that, that an organisation that you might be involved with could also consider. Um, so it's really kind of getting active and getting busy in these kinds of difficult times, but um, a critical moment, I think, in terms of our um, privacy and our, our, our online lives rights within our online spaces, um, because I think we can make ground. Uh, we can, there's a lot to be gained here. And I think we could really 
change um, policies and highlight, you know, if this project inevitably fails, which I have a, a feeling it may do, because um, it is, it's just difficult to implement effectively with such mis mistrust among the public. Let's make sure that we understand why that is. That's because the government hasn't earned a social license to put something out like this. It's not because people are stupid or, or fearful or um, in ways that are irrational. Uh, they've got legitimate complaints about government privacy and how they fail to respect um, the public's right to privacy. And that's, that's taking the form of uh, resistance to these kinds mm. of projects, notwithstanding the obvious health gains that might be possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, and that's a really good point you make about this being a key moment because we really are just, everything is online at the moment. I mean, we're speaking online right now. Um, it's, yeah. It is such an important and core part of our freedom to connect with others right now, yet also is a tool that is being used um, in, by many governments around the world to prevent that, to prevent that freedom. Mm. So for sure, we do need to take an active role in something so important to our day-to-day -day lives. Um, Lydia Shea, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. If we want to learn more about this, if listeners want to get involved with Digital Rights Watch um, or learn more mm. from, from, um, from you or from your organisation, how can they find out more? Yes, yeah, so we've got a website, which if you Google Digital Rights Watch, um, you'll find it pretty easily. Uh, we have a mailing list that you can sign up to. We put out um, uh, information and um, we obviously publish things like press releases and submissions that we write to government. So you can find out um, things that we're up to. You can potentially participate if one of them is a call to action. Uh, and we are going to publish, um, uh, I think we will have already published by the time we're listening to this, a, a backgrounder on this particular app, which will have um, some critical information about what we think the big weaknesses are. So that can help inform some discussions that you might have in your own communities. Um, and we're always open to feedback on these things. And I'm pretty sure also we will be asking people to sign petitions, to write letters if they, um, if they have the time or um, or availability to do so uh, to, to back up some of the policy asks that we're going to make about this. So the kinds of things we were talking about before, we think there's lots of things the government could do to improve um, and to this project and ensure that it's rights respecting. So we're trying to put that into words for you so that we can, um, we can advocate for it and anything you can do to help us in that cause will be gratefully received. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much and have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me on.
Beauty in Essex by Free Nationals, featuring Daniel Caesar and Unknown Model Orchestra. Coming up is an interview with Jackie Watts from the organisation Say No to Violence. So, I mean, the obvious question to start with is it's, it's impossible to talk about violence without addressing the systemic issues that amplify violence, you know, financial stress, social isolation, lack of routine and purpose. I'm sure they no doubt exacerbate these issues. So, are you able to tell us a little bit about how the threat of violence is intensified during this time in interpersonal relationships? So um, what we know from the uh, global experience of countries who have experienced more COVID-19 cases than we have, so particularly Wuhan in China, uh, Italy, uh, France, we've even heard from uh, Malaysia as well, that they have seen uh, violence in interpersonal relationships uh, tripling. tripling. Some have yeah. described it as going through, going through the roof. Um, and the World Health Organization, along with the United Nations, has said that the evidence shows that during pandemics, 
the amount of violence against women and children uh, escalates significantly. Mm. So that's the evidence base that we're working from. Now, yeah. uh, we can, as, as um, you've mentioned, we can think of uh, economic pressures, social isolation pressures, uh, financial worries, health worries, uh, mm. all the things that are making all of us a bit more anxious at the moment uh, are affecting all of us. Mm. So uh, we don't think that pandemics cause family violence, but yeah. what we expect, and um, we've seen already in some of our um, statistics, is that we expect that where there is family violence, it will intensify. Yeah. And we also think that we might start to see and hear from people who haven't perhaps historically been a part of the family violence system, if you like. They haven't okay. called the police. They haven't been to court. Um, it's, they're not a family where um, there's a recognition that family violence uh, and coercive control are taking place. Mm. So at, um, at Not a Violence and our phone room, the Men's Referral Service, we are anticipating that these numbers are only going to keep going up. Yeah, wow. That must be really terrifying for you all at this time. Well, I think it's terrifying for the women and children who are living at mm -hmm. home with people who are uh, perpetrating uh, violence and abuse. Yeah. And um, that's why we work. We work because we want to encourage any men, all men, who might be... Um, uh, on the edge of using family violence or who know themselves to be uh, violent in terms of their response to uh, external triggers. Mm. And uh, we would just encourage them to call us yeah. on 1-300-766-491. A phone call doesn't cost anything. A phone yes. call could save people from harm. It could save uh, yourself from greater harm and causing harm to your partner or your children. Uh, of people around you who uh, who are your loved ones and um, please call us because we have trained counsellors available every day of the week every hour of the day who can actually um, be part of supporting you to think about the alternatives to using violence. Wonderful and for people that aren't aware um, myself included what what is that sort of what is an example of a phone call what does that sort of phone call entail? So we've been doing this for more than 25 years now. Yep. Um, and there's some definitely some common patterns. Uh, one of the patterns is often that uh, a man will call, be calling us um, because he thinks he has to. He may be due back in court or okay. he uh, may be um, having a custody dispute with his children. Um, and he may think that calling us will help his case. So typically, um, the man will come on the call. He thinks there's nothing for him. Yeah. Even though we do point out, well, we're here. And that's why we're here. Um, he may feel that the system has overreacted to his use of violence, whether that's physical or psychological or financial or emotional. He may feel the system has over overreacted and that yep. he didn't really mean it or he didn't punch her. He only punched the wall. Um, so he's often downplaying the impact that his violence has had on the people around him. He's often unable at that point in time to see the harm that he's caused. Yep. And so part of the skill in the, in the telephone worker is to try and get him repo to reposition that a bit, to say, well, hang on, so 
you only punched the wall, but I wonder what that was like for her. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if the kids heard that. And then often we'll hear, the other thing we hear a lot of is, oh, but I never do it while the kids are there. So that tells us uh, he's making a choice. He's making a choice to use violence, but he's waiting until the kids aren't there. But it also tells us he doesn't understand how trauma and distress impact on children because yes. the children may be in another room, but there's every chance that the children are aware that there is uh, an undercurrent of violence or fear in the relationship between their parents. That's a really incredible point about that so undercurrent work a lot of violence. To, to hear him. Mm. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I think. So the presence of fear is, is, is how we um, remark upon this. So often people will say to me when they find out what my job is and, they'll, and what we do, they'll say, oh, well, oh, but people argue all the time. You know, that's, mm. you know, that's part of being married, you know, or part of being in a long term relationship. If people fight and argue, I so, say, well, there's a difference between that and being scared around Absolutely. your partner. And having that sort of fear permeate. Shells around your partner. Yeah, and having that sort of fear permeate through that the home yeah. and, and dictate every decision, you know, every, everybody in that situation makes. And I think that's a really incredible point that you, you've right. made there. It's, it's a real, um, yeah. there's a real presence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think people often just assume that family violence is physical. Yes. And of course, it's yeah. not just physical. And we saw, I hate to, to, to bring the case up, but we saw with Hannah Baxter and her children that um, there was a pattern of coercive control there that had gone on for years, so much so that it had become the norm. Um, and it was, and, and then people will, because people will often say, oh, well, if, if, if you live in a violent relationship, you should just leave. But we yeah. know that when women leave, that's when they're at the highest risk. So we have to re-educate the community. We have to keep the community in this conversation. I'd certainly have to, and this is why community radio is so important. Absolutely. We have to keep talking about what is okay and not okay in relationships. How do we, how do we know we're seeing a respectful relationship and how do we know we're seeing a pattern of behaviour that could become extremely dangerous to the point of uh, fatal? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. And I, I want to talk to you about you know, masculinity in general and how we can help foster a kind of masculinity that, that isn't oppressive. And I, I love the way you, um, I do love the way you sort of describe the, the complexities of abuse. Um, so how do you, go, at No to Violence, how do you go about encouraging men to potentially reconsider their relationship to their own masculinity and expressions of, of that masculinity? So that's again a part of the skill in the in the in the telephone work, but it's also part of the skill that um, our members have because we are mm. a peak body as well. We have 160 members wow. uh, across Australia, growing by the week. That's um, a significant um, amount. Yeah, and most of those members are running programs of some sort or another. So in their group programs, um, it's they're educational programs essentially. They're psychoeducational. Mm. So fundamentally, it's about getting the man to think about what he's learned about being a man and being okay, and yeah. to think about what he, how he um, supports his partner, um, how he raises his kids, how he deals with things in the workplace. Mm. Um, so those programs, which are in Victoria, those are twenty-week programs. They're um, slightly oh, wow. shorter in some of the other states and territories, but over twenty weeks, two hours a week. You have a you have a deeper opportunity to enable people to think about what's actually been happening. Yeah, maybe why it's happened, um, and often there will be a history of abuse or violence in that person's life. Not always, yes. but often. 
the group programs that our members run are not the place to do trauma-based work, okay. but they are. Uh, they, they do acknowledge that um, an early experience of violence, let's say, you know, his dad was violent and that's how he mm. then got his way. Um, now, often for a man at that point in time, particularly if he's a dad, he will, he will come to a moment to realise that, hang on, he's just become the dad that he said he'd never be. Yeah. And yeah. that's often a point of intervention for us where we can say, okay, so now you realise you've just become your own worst nightmare. Mm. What are you going to do about it? Here's some suggestions. Here's some ideas. Here's some tools. Because mm. it is about remembering fundamentally that violence, the use of violence is a choice. Yes. It's not outside of his control or our control. We can choose to do something different. Now, some people will need more help choosing something different than others. Absolutely. And at the heart of that is, is the masculinity question that mm. you've raised. What does it mean to be a man? How do you connect with your emotions? How do you show your emotions? Um, how do you process your emotional responses differently so that yes. you, you don't do harm? And I love the way you, you, it's very refreshing to hear it being spoken about in this very um, progress and sustainable uh, fashion of, you know, that there are ways to, I love how you speak about violence as if, you know, it, it is a deliberate choice every day to exist in a violent, to, to be someone who perpetuates violence in their relationship. And with that is hope that you can remodel and you can, with, with the work, you can absolutely start imagining your manhood outside of those sort of those hooks, you know? That's right. That's right. Well, what does it mean to be a good man? Yeah. To, um, to, use that phrase. to be a good man is to be a good dad. Yeah. Um, it's to be a supportive partner. Um, it's to be constructive in the world. Um, yeah. So it is, it is about kind of rethinking that whole thing about what does it mean to be a man in Australia today? Yeah. And I think this is really important for our young people. Because, you know, we have uh, every time that, um, that we put forward the argument that actually it begins and ends with respect mm. uh, and it begins and ends with respect for women um, and in partnership with women in community, then we get a backlash. Because, mm. And I particularly I think some young people think we're just attacking young men and we're saying that young men are bad and unless they, you know, can reframe themselves, they're not going to be good men. That's not true. And I think... Yes it's there's we wrestle with this in the sector because the um the nature of the backlash means that we are starting to have an impact because there is resistance to this yes. and the resistance is based on those prior models of masculinity and those prior ideas about you know the man being the breadwinner the provider uh yes the protector but also the boss Yes. Um, yeah. And those things maybe don't get said out loud. I'm not saying people say these things out loud necessarily, although in some uh, families, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but it's that it's ingrained in us. It's so deep Absolutely. in our psyches um, and, uh, and the harder it is to change it. And I'd like to think that there's a new uh, generation of young people growing up who have different ideas about all sorts of things, not just yeah. use of violence or respectful relationships, but they're coming through a, a period in time where they're going, hey, hang on, why would you treat somebody like that? That's really not okay. Absolutely. Um, and being able to see how the their same time, is informed. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, there's a group of young people who've come through terrible distress. They've witnessed family violence. Yeah. Uh, a number of them may have been put into the care system as a result of family violence. Um, they've got, they need so much more help to become mm. young adults, young constructive adults. Um, and, um, you know, what we're trying to do here is break the cycle. 
mm. and break this cycle and say no you know, our grandmothers and i know my uh my, one of my grandmothers certainly lived in a violent uh relationship yeah and um and nobody would have blinked an eye about that at the time no so you know we have to believe we're making some progress and you're right we absolutely do believe that people can change men can change mm. we would not be doing this work if we didn't think it possible um and um you know just branding everyone coming from this view as a man-hating organization it's not true we do the work because we actually want to see men thrive and we yes. want to see their families have safer and better lives spot on spot on i really love that point there is something really uh, and i think that's why i gravitated towards wanting to speak to um ntv because it there is this sort of focus on um you know the responsibility and the sustainability of relationships is is put back on the hands of the person who can destroy it rather than the responsibility falling on the hands of the survivor um yes. or giving the survivor tools to to make sense of 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 what she's living in and I, I i find that really you know hearing hearing you talk it's it's very energizing and it's exciting and and i'd love to um i love knowing that there are men that are you know finding solace in knowing that they, they can be agents without necessarily using violence and i think that's incredible yeah yeah um and you know what it costs nothing to make a phone call exactly there, are a, there is a service there available for mine any day of the week any time of the day one three hundred seven double six four nine one call us you have nothing to lose absolutely I'm curious about the, I've got two more questions for you today, Jackie. Um, I'm curious about the demographic of men who engage with NTV. Uh, are they primarily men that are in relationships with women or, or do you encounter queer men in your practice as well? Um, I'm only asking because I, I, you know, I'm well aware of the intense correlations between toxic masculinities, heterosexuality and the sort of patriarchal dimensions of interpersonal relationships. And patriarchy impacts on safe sex, same sex relationships as well. Absolutely. So it may not may not um, manifest itself in such an obvious or binary way, but it's there. And mm. the notion that that patriarchy uh, is changed by people being in same sex or queer relationships, that's not borne out. Now, what I would say is we are not the specialist service for supporting mm. uh, same sex or queer communities. That we know we've got more work to do in that space to be inclusive and to be uh, able to to be a safe space for people to come to. We also know that the level of violence in same-sex relationships is at least equal for it is yeah. in straight and sexual relationships. So what that means is we need to do more and we need to work alongside our queer sisters, brothers and others to, to say, okay, what do we, how do we design this? There's some great organizations in Victoria doing this work. So yeah. you've got um, Bon Harbor Health, uh, you've got um, uh, Rainbow Health, Q Life uh, is quite good. Q Life. Um, what's the, what's the ones? Uh, the Drummond Street services. Respect, yeah, W Respect and Drummond Street. Yeah, so there's some and fabulous organisations in New South Wales. You've got Acon, um, but they're not nearly as well resourced as the organisations in Victoria. Mm. Having said all of that, we still know we've got more work to do than TV yeah. and MRS to be more relevant and inclusive. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a wonderful point. And my, my last question, Jackie, um, and this is just mainly so, you know, I acknowledge that violence exists in, in all different facets of life. And I know that there, there could be people listening to 3CR um, that, that, that are curious about calling. Um, I want to know, during COVID, 
how has your practice changed and what are some things that listeners should know if they're hoping to get in contact with you? So the telephone service is still very much there, very Wonderful. much there every day of the week, um, every, uh, every day of the week and, and at all times. Um, we also have web chat facility. So if people yep. would like to contact us using web chat rather than having to talk to another human being at this stage, they can fire the questions in. Yep. Um, we've had to um, uh, put a temporary stop to the face-to-face -face group work because what of COVID-19. So men who were in groups, we've had to um, put, a, put a pause mm -hmm. on people who were in men's behaviour group programmes yep. um, because of the face-to-face -face work being too risky during COVID-19. But what, what we are doing is the people who provide those programs mm -hmm. um, are actually making uh, every attempt to call the man every week. So there's still a connection that's going on by telephone yeah. or by Zoom. So that's carrying on. What we worry about is we worry about the men who were either on a waiting list to yeah. get into a program um, and also those who may uh, just need help and can't see where, the, you know, where, where can they get help. So we would encourage, that's why I say we would encourage contact with our phone workers as the first point of contact. We will put people in touch with their local services. Um, as I say, it's very unlikely that that will be face-to-face -face or group work, but we might be able to put people in touch with local services who can still uh, connect them with help available, help them think about their family situation or their economic situation or whatever uh, set of um, factors is impacting on that man and that family at that time. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jackie. I really appreciate um, this conversation and I feel incredibly privileged to have, you know, gotten into the inside surrounding NTV and it's just a wonderful organisation um, and continue the fantastic work. Thank you, Madison. All the best. Anytime. Delighted to talk to your lovely picture. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr .org.au So, here you are Too foreign for home Too foreign for here Never enough for both Ijuoma umebinyo Diaspora Blues What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan.
That was Emma Russack performing If You Could See Me Now. Coming up next, um, as a really nice way to end the show, we'll be listening to a section from a podcast from Diversity Arts Australia called The Colour Cycle. And this particular episode, or this section from this episode, is called Towards Creative Sector Self-Determination. And it's all about how we can create real systemic change. Um, and it's from, our fair, from the uh, Diversity Arts Fair Play Synopsium, Synopsium at the Wheeler Centre. So the voices you'll be hearing include panellists Eugenia Flynn, Fiona Toomey, uh, Tanya Kanis, and Jason Tamir. Enjoy. Thank you. I know that self-determination and survival is so incredibly important to us mob and I hear what you're saying about representation playing a role within that and we heard before in the keynote about representation as we are creating representation within the, the creative industries. I wanted to unpack the idea about representation and the politics of representation a little bit and Tanya I'm going to throw to you because I, I know that you wrote this amazing article that I reference all the time about diversity is a white word. You're referencing Hassan Hajj's his work about diversity. And I, I suppose I wanted to unpack a little bit about that politics. Often the conversation around the communities that we come from kind of sits at a level about pushing for diverse representation, which is important. But what are the power dynamics around this and how do we push for more than just representation, more than just inclusion in that central narrative? How do we push for real change to that narrative itself? Yeah, um, I, I would like to begin, um, begin by saying and acknowledging that we are meeting on unceded uh, land 
always was, always will be Aboriginal land. If it's okay, I want to conflate the two responses together. That's the first question and the second. I remember a time which the arts and diversity were separate. Absolutely separate. I would go for my classes at university in the morning and then head to Rise Refugee afterwards and it was a completely different conversation. The fact that these two sites could interrelate or overlap was not even in the consciousness of coloniality. So over time, this change has happened while I was doing this, this PhD and over time I've seen these two spaces begin to bleed into one another. And there's two things I have to say about that. It is easy to talk about the other and continue this otherization when they are not in the room. Mm-hmm. And even when you're in the room and you don't aesthetically look a particular way, that doesn't read a particular way, all these assumptions that come into that space about speaking for or speaking about in a very abstract, abstract way. So it's dangerous when these two sites start to bleed. It's dangerous for you. There's a lot of culturally unsafe spaces. Because you and being present there is a challenge in and of itself, is a, is a site of resistance. Um, and so it's also quite a scary change, I found, that happened, especially in the last four to five years. There was almost a safety going from just sitting, listening, 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 then going to rise and being like, oh, this happened, and, oh, this happened, let's unpack this. Because the self was so divided in those spaces, it becomes scary because not only are you in that space to witness some of the pathologizing histories and research about communities that you identify with and, and histories you're connected to, but it becomes dangerous for yourself and for yourself as part of a community because then you have questions of what are the limitations? Am I being a community informant? What can I say? What can I not say? How do I respect my elders? How do I speak about these things while not speaking about these things at the same time in these spaces? Dr. Odette Collada, who was already, she's been referenced before by Genevieve Greaves, talked about whiteness as being a virus. And what she meant by this is it changes. It moulds into different things across time and across space. So the adaptability of understanding racial literacy as this discussion changes is vital and is really important. You know, these are challenges from, you know, and I've mentioned this in other public sites, something as, as seemingly simple as fighting to use the term we when talking about refugee asylum seeker and ex detainees. So this is writing a book chapter about a particular arts practice and I was like, I need to use we, this is a methodology, this is what needs to happen in this space. And the editor came back and said, you're assuming that the readers of this chapter are of the refugee asylum seeker community. And I was like, well, you're assuming they're not. So when these two spaces start to meet together, that's when you see that those moments of challenges, which can go either way, and and Genevieve Greaves has mentioned before in public, you know, when, when do you take on the warrior approach and when do you have to take an approach where that's a battle that needs to be fought a little later so you know the other thing I want to say is there's often this misconception about centering voices and I've been in consultation situations where the conceptual idea of centering voices is exactly what Dr Nilmini was talking about which is like there are key decision makers and we'll invite you for this particular moment to share something and share something so valuable that they don't deserve to hear and are not ready to implement anyway. 
And those are the, also the really challenge, like the huge challenges of, of navigating. And I've been in situations where centering voices is literally centering the only pop people in the space into the centre of the space, while the big decision makers who don't identify as pop or First Nations are on the outer side of that circle. And that is so clear and that is so violent under the gaze of we're including you in this conversation and you should be happy about it. So, you know, I would say that we need to be careful with the institutionalisation of these terms. They have a particular history. They have a resistance history in time and space, and it meant one thing there. But with the institutionalization of, of these things, there comes something with that change. When is it safe to have these conversations according to co- coloniality and what is lost in that process? So that's what I'd like to put out there in terms of having these types of conversations. Let me know if I'm talking to you. No, um, so, you know, what, what was that? Last bit of the question about representation. Ah, yeah, representation. So Rennie Edo Lodge, who wrote Why I Don't Talk to White People About Race, talked about the representation fatigue. And the way I like to conceptualise that is with, with this idea of representation, you can tell your story under certain frames, but you cannot theorise about it. You can self-express, but you can't self-determine. And whatever you say needs to be translated by other lenses. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the limitations of representation. So what I argue for is that there's representation and there's interpretation. And with the representation discourse, we're often just siloed into this part of things, which means the power of representation, of decision-making processes, of the bigger sort of abstract, the, the, the grassroots and the links are consistently and structurally denied. On Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. We'll continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Enjoy the rest of your day and thank you for tuning in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Until next time.